Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1075. As always, I'm hoping you are safe and healthy wherever you are. And uh, this episode's a little bit longer, so I'm going to try to keep this top part a little bit shorter um, which I'm already making longer by telling you that I'm going to make it shorter. So I'm already defeating the purpose. I'm a bit of an overtalker. Have you noticed that? You probably have. Um, so let's talk about events at ID10T.com. Share uh, events, a thing you made, something you want to promote. Uh, like Chris, who writes, For the Nomads is a fundraiser set up to help the all-too-important but often unrecognized touring crew members of the music industry, a.k.a. the roadies. The crews that build the stages, the lights, the sounds of our favorite concerts have found themselves suddenly out of work with no date of return in sight. Visit ForTheNomads.org where you can donate to the fund as well as bid in the silent auction for signed custom gear, instruments, and memorabilia that has been donated by some amazing bands and artists. This is a great cause. Um, Having done uh, a ton of theater shows, um, they don't just come together by themselves. It It is a group effort by fantastic people who come in and make sure you know the lighting is there and that the audio is working and the stage is set up and everything you know nothing falls on you in the middle of a performance so um all the respect in the world for our music industry and live concert uh roadies the touring crew members who make the shows uh possible so i really 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 hope Oh boy, I I hope that we're able to start doing that kind of stuff again soon. Um, Events at ID10T.com is how you can get your thing mentioned on the ID10T community corkboard. This episode is Mr. Greg Nicotero, who of course is an executive producer and director for The Walking Dead, special effects pioneer, genius, um, owner of great long hair, uh, and an all-around sweet fellow that I've known for a decade now. And uh, I just love Greg. I love Greg. I love his family. And we recorded this April 10th. So it's two, oh, a little over two months old. So the quarantine was still just under a month at this point when we talked. Um, there is no, I don't, I'll just, I'll give you a, a spoiler you'll want to hear right now, which is I don't have any Walking Dead news uh, at this point. 
so there isn't anything that is being announced uh, in this episode <laughs> that's informational about, you know, any of the Walking Dead stuff. But, um, you know, we do talk Walking Dead and just about Greg's incredible career. I say this in the podcast. You should really look at his IMDb page because he's such an amazing special effects artist that there are films where you're like, oh, my God. Yes, of course. This thing was so seamlessly woven into the movie you know, and it's not necessarily a genre movie, so I didn't think of it as having a special effect. But wow, amazing special effects! And so, um, Greg is uh, Greg is a fan of the of special effects and genre stuff. Who then became a creator of genre stuff. So it's one of the reasons, uh, one of the many reasons why I love him so much. He has the uh, DVD and Blu-ray release of his Shutter series Creep Show which is the um, the new, newest version of Creepshow, which, of course, I grew up... Uh, I watched the old Creepshow, the Creepshow movies, um, when I was a kid, and so glad Greg's done such an amazing job uh, with Creepshow. He was just about to start shooting season two of Creepshow when the quarantine hit, so I'm not 100% sure where they are at with that, but I would be surprised if they had started... I don't think they've started shooting it. They only just announced that people could start shooting stuff again. So, uh, yes, creep show for Nicotero. I believe he is G Nicotero, uh, on Instagram. So you can follow him there for that. And, uh, you know, whenever we get some updated walking dead news, I will let you know. And now I'm going to shut up and get into the episode, uh, to episode number 1075 with Mr. Greg Nicotero. Let us roll the thing. Have not literally not gone anywhere. We we self quarantined about a week before the actual quarantine. We just sort of felt like this is this is it for for a bit. So let's just be safe. And so we haven't really we haven't gone anywhere. Like I I've gone to the pharmacy twice, and I had to drop some of our dogs poop off at the vet because he has he had a tummy issue. But again, everything's just in the trunk, like. They opened the trunk. They took the poop out of the trunk, closed no, it. No, really? And then, no. you know, like he didn't shit in the trunk. It was in a bag. But then, like, we've had to pick stuff up at the pharmacy. And it's like, okay, they throw it in the trunk. And then I drive off and have had zero contact with anyone in probably five weeks. Wow, that's interesting. Because out here, you know, CVS, you can still walk in. Ralph's and, and the grocery stores, it's... You know, I've I've gone out like maybe four times in the last two weeks because I I have stuff at my office that I need to get after a couple of days. So I'll drive to Chatsworth and go to K&B and get a couple of things and come back. But um, it was interesting, I have to say. I went and drove through a Starbucks and boy, you, you, you don't really appreciate the stuff that you take for granted until you get a cup of tea that you hadn't had in a couple of weeks and you're like wow it was used to just be you just drive up and do it and now oh yeah it's totally. a deal it's so 
it's so it's so strange and trying to explain trying to explain you know i talked to a lot of walking dead people and they're like how come there was never an episode about daryl looking for toilet paper <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I would imagine that when we start production on season 11, there will probably be some toilet paper in the background of something. And Daryl will sort of look at it and go, huh. and just keep going. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing is that you never, you, you know, like you don't really think about just because it probably impedes the story most of the time of like, how are these people wiping their asses? You know, I imagine yeah. if you're a whisperer, you don't. Or uh, or you just wipe it from, like walker skin. I don't know what they're doing or pine cones or, or whatever. But you're right. I think the last place that I actually went that was non-essential was five weeks ago. Again, a, almost a week before the quarantine. I drove through Starbucks and I got like four of the drink that I get because I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be coming back here again for a while. Mm-hmm. And and as someone who was, uh, you know, like. I I had my Starbucks routine every day. My uh, my um, almond almond latte drinks that I haven't had them in like five weeks, and you know, and it's fine. It's like, look, people are sacrificing real things, not just lattes. You know? No, so, I, I, I I know, and it's you know, for me, I'm just curious about you know what three weeks will look like from now, and what six weeks will look like from now, and what six months will look like from now, because you know, there's obviously the conversations about production and reading outlines and reading scripts and really wondering what that world will look like. I mean, does that mean there'll be less people on set? Is everybody going to be wearing masks? Is everybody going to be wearing gloves? Like how does, how does our business moving forward change based on all of this? I'm so I'm so curious, and you no know, one the, knows. Because I know that's it's just the uncertainty factor. I was actually my friend Andrea does a television show that's really funny called "I'm Sorry," and she wrote me in for a bunch of episodes this season. And we were literally mid; we were shooting right before it all happened, and then of course the production shut down. And I was texting with her yesterday, and she and she said the same thing: like, God, I don't know you know, what it looks like when we come back. And I said, well, it'll probably be a version of a set medic, like taking temperatures of everyone before they come on set. And if you have an elevated temperature, they send you home. And if you don't have a temperature, they let you work. And there will probably be certain guidelines, you know, but specifically in our business, it's all about proximity. There's makeup is in your face and, Mm -hmm. you know, audio people and lighting people and other actors. Like, it's uh, our business is nothing but proximity Everyone's yeah. pushed together in one. I don't know how, like if you're shooting a scene, I don't know how people would socially distance, you know, I mean, but it may, maybe it just adds to production time where people set up in stages rather than all at once. I legitimately have no idea either. Well, maybe the, maybe the Marvel guys and uh, George Lucas had it right. You just shoot actors individually on green screen and then you stick everybody together uh, like Rodriguez did on Sin City. Yeah, but specifically for what you do, yeah. I've been through zombie makeup before. And it, when I did it for the first season of Talking Dead, it took about 90 minutes mm-hmm. and um, and a little less than a half hour to get it all off. But you know, like you're right in someone's face. And yeah. for, the, for the show, you, you have teams of people making up scores of walkers, you know, so it is, that, that is a tricky like, oh, how do we, 
How do you navigate that? The, the yeah. core element of our show requires that we are in people's faces putting shit on their faces. I know. It's, uh, it's really a, a unique. It's a really unique time for, for all of us. And, and the, the not knowing, I think, is what, you know, usually like if you have to go to the hospital or you have a surgery or something, usually the thing that gets you going and keeps you moving is like, okay, I know six weeks from now, the pain that I'm feeling now from this surgery or whatever will be gone. So you kind of look forward to, to kind of erase whatever bad's happening to you at that minute. So it's hard, it's hard for everyone to sort of look forward, but. Yeah, because there's no specific, the information seems to change every day and there's no real specific, it's, it really is the uncertainty principle, which again, I think is sapping a lot of people's creative energy because they, I think you, I don't know. I think some things kind of tend to need to be in place for you to feel comfortable being creative. Some people strive in discomfort, you know, some people are able to produce art when they're incredibly uncomfortable. But in general, I think this bubble of uncertainty is kind of clogging the, you know, like what otherwise would be, I'm going to sit down and create some new thing all of our creative energy is like, well, what is tomorrow going to be like? (laughs) It's crazy. Listen, I mean, you know, the first week and a half that I was quarantined, because, you know, we were, we were set to start shooting season two of Creepshow on March 16th. We were, we had shot, you know, we were prepped. We had the show, the episode cast, the sets were built. We had even shot a day zero. We had even shot inserts um, and some, some pickup stuff. So to go from that, like a thousand miles an hour to a dead zero stop, it was, it was really jarring. I mean, you know, you know, when you get the momentum, when you're about to start filming, you get yourself psyched up and you get that momentum and it's like, you know, on the starting line, revving, 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 and then just boom, the gate came down. And it was really, you know, I had another script that I had to write and I got to say, it was a little challenging because it took me you know, I was having a little hard time sort of like forcing myself to sit down and do it because I was like, I don't know what's going on. It was very strange. Yeah, but it's, you know, a lot of people, I think, I don't know how different people view the business, but I view it as a business of momentum. Yeah. You know, you work really hard to create momentum and the momentum that you create is somewhat of, um, I don't know, like a security blanket, but at least a structure because you know that, you, you know, like mo- work begets work, momentum, activity creates more activity. And so when you're in the middle, yeah, when you're in the middle of something, like you're saying, you know, cause it was like creep show for you and then walking dead probably right after that and mm-hmm. whatever else K and B is working on. And then when the momentum stops, it's like, Oh wait, the momentum, that was the river that was carrying me. Yeah. And yeah. now I'm in a dry riverbed and I don't know how do I get from here to there. But the good news is, it will pick up again, you know, like there are people, you know, it's not like people are not going to want entertainment anymore. It's not like people are, you know, like it, it will, it will happen again. It's just the big question mark of when and how. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, listen, I mean, it, it makes you feel fortunate that, you know, I mean, I'm doing a lot of kind of, introspection about my career and how I got into it and who I started working with. And, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about 
season one of Creep Show coming out on DVD and May 19th and a lot of that stuff. But it's been interesting to think about, you know, moments like meeting George Romero for the first time or meeting Tom Savini or talking about being in the trenches with other filmmakers and how when you look to your left and you look to your right, you can't imagine them not being there. So Mm -hmm. you really start, you know, I've been thinking about Sam Raimi a lot. I've been thinking about all these guys that I've worked with um, that I haven't, you know, seen recently, but uh, it's just kind of weird to look at my career uh, from this vantage point and think about how I met George and then how I met Tom Savini. And then when I moved to LA and I knew three people when I moved to LA, all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's kind of bringing some of that, the stuff that happened so long ago into kind of sharp focus for me, which, which I really do like because I can share it with my kids and my, my family. Yeah. But I think, with what you do specifically, you know, and you know, you mentioned Romero and Savini and Sam Raimi and and you and, you know, I think you guys in particular are so well equipped for anything because I think what one of the things that I think makes guys like you celebrities is the fact that people understand that you you had to use your creative wits to do what you do and to survive because especially at the time when you started and then, you know, going even further back when George started, it's not like, it's not like that the specific subset of genre of horror genre or gore or anything. It like the the business kind of turned its nose up at that a little bit and sort of viewed it as kind of like, Oh, that's for, uh, you know, that's, that, that's a, um, I don't know. What's a good word for it? Like that low brow. It's low brow. Like that's low brow. It's for the common folk, you know, but, it is one of those genres that it's like you are, you wouldn't do it if you weren't a fan of that genre. So other fans of that genre know that you were sort of, you rose from the fan masses to sort of, you know, like to accept the gauntlet and you had to be creative to survive. And that's what's so charming about it. And that's what's so relatable about it. Cause you're any one of us, you, you could like you, you did what so many fans want to do and could do and I mean like not that it's easy what you do I just mean like you you just did it you just made it happen and that is such a part of the story of special effects horror guys have been doing horror for decades like you fucking made it happen in a system where you shouldn't really have been able to because the business did not make it easy to well the funny thing about that too is if you look at at people in my generation of makeup effects artists, you know, they all grew up loving the same thing. It was all about Frankenstein and Creature on Black Lagoon and the Wolfman. And if you hadn't had a guy like Dick Smith, who was willing to share all of his techniques with everybody, you know, Dick Smith would write these little pamphlets about how to make blood and how when he did Taxi Driver or The Exorcist or The Godfather, he would like write these little things up about how he did it. And I really feel like his uh, willingness to document everything that he did and his willingness to share has changed. Uh, he, he retroactively changed his own field forever because then you had guys like Rick Baker and Rob Bottin and Stan Winston and 
when I started working with Savini, you know, they documented everything. They took pictures of everything. They shot video of everything. And now you have these amazing books that come out that are career retrospectives. And you think, wow, these guys were really smart because they documented everything they did, every sculpture, every design, everything that they kept. It's like, why did they keep that? Why did Rick Baker keep every photo of everything that he did? Why did he Because he's a fan. That's because he's a fucking fan. That's exactly fan. right. That's what a That's fan exactly does. Right. And a fan wants to share with other fans because you're all in the same boat. And you yeah. know, like, well, we don't have the budget. We don't have the industry really supporting us. We have to be this ragtag group of survivalists who figure it out on our own and we have to share with each other because when one of us does well it elevates all of it yeah. and it's really about and also as fans they probably want to see innovation you know this is as far as i can take this thing what's someone else going to do when they come along how are they going to innovate oh my god that's brilliant you did what you took this idea i had and you did what with it yeah i'm telling you it's and it's a really unique it's a really unique community and you're part of it because you know so many makeup effects guys and you've dealt with Rob Zombie and Wayne Toth Wayne and all, Toth. These, oh, all, these, all these amazing guys. But, but you're right. It starts from just being a fan and the sheer love of it. And, you know, for me, when I grew up in Pittsburgh, you know, my grandparents, um, you know, my family was from Italy. My grandfather was a truck driver. You know, my dad sort of bucked tradition and he really sort of, uh, put himself through medical school to become a doctor. Uh, so when I became enamored with with fantasy movies and science fiction and horror, I had no idea that that was going to be a career for me. I was just a, a massive... Uh, I loved being transported by all those things. So if somebody would have told me when I was six, seven, eight years old, oh, that's the career you're going to choose, I would have never believed them. But then to find out that... George Romero lived 40 minutes away from my house in Pittsburgh. You know, it's like those maverick, you know, sort of groundbreaking, bold filmmakers. They had no money to do any of those movies. Do you think Night of the Living Dead or Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I mean, imagine the amount of money that's put into visual effects in movies now and the amount of money that was put into makeup effects back in those days. It was it was infinitesimal. There was such little money that it forced you to be creative. You had to come up with creative solutions to solve problems that filmmakers had at that time. Now it's different because any problem can be solved by hitting backslash zero enter. You know, it really is. It really is a unique situation. Well, there's a library of content too that you can like. You can get plugins and you can get. I mean, I remember I went to see um, uh, in Santa Monica, that little art house theater that's on Montana. I can't, uh, I wish I could remember the name of it, but probably 15 years ago, uh, 12, 15 years ago, I went to see a double feature of, it was Tron and Khan. It was Tron and the Wrath of Khan. <laughs> and Steven Lisberger, the director of Tron, spoke and he said, look, when we made Tron in 1980 or 81, whatever it was, he goes, now, if we needed certain effects, there are places, there are, even this was 15 years ago too, there are libraries that, you know, like there are programs, there are software. He goes, we didn't have software. All the CG that we did in Tron, we basically had to plug into a machine as like math problems. Yeah. And 
just sort of hope that it came out okay, you know? And that's why I think, it's why I have so much respect for, for what you do and, and special effects, you know, especially going back as far as you've been doing it because it's a good life lesson in general because you're not afforded the opportunity to say like, well, we can't really do this. You just know that you have to get something done. And so you have to ask the right question of, well, this seems impossible, but how would I do it if I were going to do it? Yeah. And then you yeah. just have to figure it out. And when, you, when you're on a movie or a television show, the first meeting is always the most exciting. When you're talking to the director, you're talking to the writer, and you're trying to, you're brainstorming ideas about how to do things because there's, it's a blank canvas, you know, and so much of, so much of it is like, oh, well, how do we want to, how do we imagine this gag happening? And you start throwing ideas and brainstorming. That, that to me is one of the most exciting meetings of any production is the first one where you start to dig into it, you know? Yeah. And I always say this to you every season on Walking Dead, I go, it must be fun for you to, although I'm sure it's very stressful because I can, I can see, I, you know, I see the show on a level where I, I can tell like, oh, this was Greg upping the stakes from what they did last year, you know, and now going into an 11th season of a show, which is insane for television yeah, for a non-procedural drama, you know, um, yeah. uh, each season, like what, what has changed even technology wise, what has changed in the last 11 years that you've, that you're doing now that you couldn't have even fathomed, you know, when the show first started? Oh boy. You know, there's, I I do feel like uh, the look of the zombies and the, and the prosthetic work that we have done. And, you know, we don't do a tremendous amount of digital augmentation on the zombies. I mean, for some of the gags we do, and I think that um, Aaron and the visual effects team does a does a, a great job. And there were instances where, like you know, the gag where the the wire was hooked up to the battery and it cut the zombies' heads off. And I remember thinking, okay, well, you know, there's a practical way to do it. There's a digital way to do it. How wide is the shot going to be? If the shot's closed, do we want to make a head? And if the shot's a little wider and you want to see multiple heads, you know, so you sort of start fine tuning that but i even feel like the advances in in makeup effects and visual effects in the last 10 years allows us to do more like there were times you're like no 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 you got to be in front of a green screen and you have to do this and you got to shoot it a certain way now they're like yeah don't worry about it just shoot it that way and we'll put in a cliff in the background or we'll put in a (laughs) helicopter or we'll 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 do we'll we'll just take care of it so don't worry about it and I think in television, it's more important than movies because in television, you have to move so, so fast that if it takes you a 40 minute, if it's 40 minutes to shoot one setup on set, that's a long time to then have to do take two. And I know we did a lot more practical blood stuff in the earlier days of The Walking Dead. We had head explosion rigs which were little funnels that were attached to the zombies backs and you would stomp on it and the blood would shoot out and we did a lot of that and then we just realized after a couple seasons that it was really challenging except for on very specific instances it was challenging because we were moving so quickly that we didn't have time to set up these things we called stomper rigs which would be a little vest that the zombies would wear but in the first 
couple seasons of Walking Dead, when you see those those head hits and those explosions, and they were they were practical. It looked fucking great. They really did look great because it was the first time that this kind of these kinds of special effects were shown on you know high def television. Yeah. It was always the challenge before was like, well, how can you how can you do cinema grade special effects every week? And you guys in particular shoot an episode in eight days, which is insane. And you, you know, you, you, you all figured out how to do it. And I think that was one of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why the show was so revolutionary was like, oh my God, they figured out how to shoot this shit. And there's like close-ups of zombies mm-hmm. and, it, and it, looks, it looks real, you know? Like that was, I think the show's been on for so long that people forget how groundbreaking that was for yeah. horror on television at that time in a pre-Netflix streaming era where not a lot of places were really doing genre-specific programming yet. You know, maybe AMC, HBO, maybe TNT. And that was, I think, kind of it, you know? Like, it just wasn't... It's so widely accepted now. Mm-hmm. But but Walking Dead really helped kickstart that. And um, it just is insane that uh, how fast everything changed and how different the business is now versus where it was... 11 years ago. <laughs> Listen, what's funny is when we when AMC released their first look photo from The Walking Dead for season 1, it was that famous shot of Bicycle Girl reaching out towards the camera. Mm-hmm. That was the first photo that was released to the press from the set of The Walking Dead ever. It was the zombies. And then when Drew Struzan did that painting for season 1, it was all zombies, and the show wasn't a it wasn't a zombie show, but everybody sort of marveled at like, like, wow, look at what we can do. We want we want the world to see that this is something special and it's something different. So that was what started to pull our audience in. And then when they met Rick and they met Glenn and they met Lori and they met uh, Shane, they were they were hooked because they went, wow, that's a brilliant aspect of the show. And now we have all these amazing relatable characters in this insane situation. And I always remember thinking that it was unique that they didn't release um, cast photos, but they released a photo of one of the lead zombies as a way to entice people to come in and see something new and see something different. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really wasn't... I feel like Walking Dead was really the show that kind of legit, but like mainstreamed. I mean, listen, in terms of horror fans, you know, you look back, I think, you know, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead was a great entry into, oh, wow, these movies can be super cool and fucked up and it's not just like, grr, you know, yeah. uh, or like 28 Days Later or, or something that really kind of plays with the genre where the effects are kind of catching up with with everything you know where it can it doesn't just look like you know oatmeal on someone's face you know which by um, the way we use oatmeal on day of the dead <laughs> that was what we actually used um for the background zombies it's funny that of all the words that you pulled out of the oatmeal air, well what, oatmeal what, and latex for you for you from your side of the business when do you feel like it started to turn when do you feel like it's people started to go oh this is a real thing this isn't just an underground cult subgenre this is like a real thing that people are interested in that you know the business obviously follows the money trail so when did you feel like that started to change in the business was there a particular movie for you 
I think it was like, it wasn't a movie, it was video games. Mm-hmm. I think that the moment that House of the Dead and Resident Evil sort of introduced the third person shooter game into the zombie mythology where the player had a plastic gun and the player was responsible for shooting zombies. It immediately put the player into a sense of jeopardy. If you don't shoot all the zombies, you get bit, you lose your life, and then your game starts over. And I think that was, I don't remember, I want to say 90, probably earlier than that, but I remember 98 uh, 98 and 99, I was working with Robert Rodriguez and we were doing Spy Kids and I had a Sega game in the trailer. So when we weren't shooting, we were literally taking the orange plastic guns and shooting zombies for House of the Dead. Now, I feel like that you go from the first person shooter video games to the Resident Evil movie to 28 Days Later. Then all of a sudden people really realize the thrill of, of sort of existing in that post-apocalyptic world. I mean, I think Resident Evil 2 had like a 20-minute movie before the game actually even started. <laughs> and I remember telling Robert Rodriguez, I was like, you got to watch this movie. He was writing, it's funny, it was 90, must have been 1998. I think we were shooting Faculty. Um, and I said, you got to watch this. This is crazy. This game is so weird. And there's like a 20 minute zombie movie before the game even starts. <laughs> and I was so intrigued by that. Um, and then of course, you know, but when those, they started making the movies and then Zack Snyder's movie came out and then Shaun of the Dead came out. Um, all of a sudden everybody had kind of caught up to the world that I had been existing in since I grew up in Pittsburgh, which is, you know, the zombie mythology. Well, horror is such an interesting genre to me because it, you know, there's such a, there, there, there's such a glut of it now, which I, it, Lydia and I don't mind at all. Lydia says hi, by the way. Lydia hi. and I don't mind at all because that's mostly what we watch. And so yeah. we, you know, like, I don't mind that there's a ton of horror. It is interesting, though, that it is, it is a genre that is sort of like... I don't know what's the equivalent. It's sort of like, I think the business sort of sees it as like, you know, dropping a dollar into a slot machine and eventually you might hit the million dollar jackpot, you know, like the big yeah. jackpot. Cause you can make a horror movie for under $5 million and it can make $200 million. Like if you, if you knock it out of the park, if you catch the right wave, they can be incredibly profitable, which I think, is good because it provides more opportunity for filmmakers who really care about the genre, but can also dilute the genre with people who are just, who just see it as like a cash cow or like a a money making a money. Well, that's why when you were saying, if you put your dollar into a slot machine and that slot machine hits the next thing, you know, you're going to turn and you're going to look behind you. There's going to be 60 people in line behind you (laughs) that want to hit the same thing but it has so much to do with who's pushing the button. Um, and I think that's why if you, you know, looking back at those filmmakers that, that really, you know, I, I was, I was telling my son yesterday, we were talking about uh, genre movies in the theater. And I said, Devin, like between the summer of 1980 and 1982 was probably the most fertile for genre material because you had uh, 
uh, Creepshow, Road Warrior, Blade Runner, E.T., Poltergeist, The Thing, American Werewolf in London, Escape from New York. Like every weekend, there was another genre movie coming out, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I consider a genre movie. But all of those filmmakers, uh, Carpenter, Spielberg, Lucas, they, it was the exact same thing we were talking about with Rick Baker and Dick Smith. They were fans. Raiders of the Lost Ark was literally those two guys making a movie about the cereals that they loved when they were younger. They wanted to make cereals. You know, John Carpenter loved, um, loved uh, John Ford movies. So he wanted to do this. Uh, there was just, it's just so interesting that the filmmakers, when we hit that great stride in the early 80s, all of those directors were such movie buffs that I think that's what made that boom so important and, you know, and so critical to our generation because, you know, when I was, uh, when I was 17, 18 years old, those were the movies that you went to and your parents, not mine because mine were great, but, you know, most parents would be like, oh, why would you watch that? Well, it's, you know, and then there became this sort of stigma with people that liked horror movies. So then you ended up becoming the kid who would take a magazine to school and other kids thought you were weird. And then it became this weird subversive. Like Cinefex magazine or something? Yeah. I mean, all of those magazines were where other people would be into football and other people would be into sports and this and that. And then I have, you know, my famous monsters magazine and it, I, I don't think about it as much now that I'm an adult, but when I was, when I was younger, I really, I didn't have a ton of friends that were into the same movies and the same genre stuff. No, and it was really hard to connect with other people who were into that stuff because in a pre-internet era, you know, like, look, there, there might've been like, I don't know, three other people in your school who were that specific kind of weirdo outcast. And I was definitely in grade school. I was in that like all the out, a lot of the outcasts were sort of clumped together. So it was like, you know, the D and D nerd, this guy who loves special effects, the chess guy, the computer kid, because they were all just sort of scooped out of the, yeah. you know, all the other kids who were whatever socialized better. And so, you know, I always, I like, I, maybe at the time I sort of felt like, Oh, it feels weird to be on the fringe out here. But I look back and I think how blessed am I that I was in this kind of fringe friend group that ultimately I think fostered fertile creative thought because we didn't like nothing really came easy to us in school and we weren't popular. And so we weren't spending a lot of time worrying about that. We were just into our own shit and we supported each other, you know, even if there were only a few of us. And it allowed, it allowed the opportunities for our imaginations to uh, to grow, you know, and and it's funny because there's that scene in Animal House when uh, you know in the opening of Animal House where they're trying to pledge to the fraternity and they you know they keep pushing Tom Hulse over into that other room with the other <laughs> kind of nerdy guys, and it's like hey Muhammad and Jugdish and Clayton and he's like oh yeah you know and you realize that there's they're pushing the people that they felt you know weren't. Uh, weren't you know uh can't even remember the name of the oh boy i'm definitely in quarantine because i can't remember the name of the the delta house no not the delta the other house anyway um but yeah you know i mean i there was one guy that i went to high school with that that was 
into the same kind of stuff that I was into. We'd go to the movies together all the time and all that stuff. But yeah, for the most part, it was a kind of a strange sort of solitary, uh, a solitary situation. And then you'd look at famous monsters and in later Fangorian, you could write in and fan, fans would write letters in about the movies that they loved. And you're like, wow, other people, other people love the same stuff I love. So you felt like you were part of a community. Right. And that really, I think when you sort of discover that there are more people out there that love what you do, you know, then it's a whole other world. So for me, especially getting into talk, you know, doing creep show and it was, ultimately really my my opportunity to 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 pay back the the legacy of George Romero by by re, you know by reintroducing people to the show that had so much creatively to do with who I was at the time and how much I loved sort of being transported to that world it was, it was so much fun okay it's time to commit 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Well, you worked on Creepshow too, right? I did. Which, which, did you work on all the shorts or did you work on? I worked on all of them. I, uh, you know, I, I had. Interestingly enough, when I got hired on Day of the Dead in 1984, I was hired by George and his wife at the time, Christine, and they um, they really saw something in me. Like I'd never worked on a movie. I never even thought I would ever work on a movie. Well, how, did, just, how did how did they even find you then? Well, I met George, ironically, in a restaurant. Uh, in Rome, Italy, my family and I, we had gone on like our, our only European vacation. And I was sitting at a restaurant and George Romero was sitting at a table across. And I went, that's the guy that did Night Living Dead. Like I knew who he was. And it turns out, you know, when we, that, that he had directed the crazies and my uncle was, had a, had an acting role in the Crazies, So he knew my last name and knew who I was. So he, I think I was, I don't know, 15 years old or something. So he had invited me down to come to the office and I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. Like I love movies and I love special effects and I love horror and I love all this stuff, but now I'm being invited to come visit the office of the guy who did Night Living Dead. So we became friends 
And <clears throat> when they started shooting Creepshow, he invited me to the set. They had offered me a job on the movie, ironically, to be a PA, a production assistant. And I was like, yeah, I don't think I can do that because, you know, I'm supposed to go off to college and I'm going to study biology and I think I'm going to go into medicine and, you know, whatever. But I became friends with George and subsequently that's where I met Tom Savini was when I was on one of those visits to the set of Creepshow. Now I knew who Tom was because Dawn of the Dead had been out uh, Friday the 13th and The Burning and The Prowler and Maniac and all those super gory movies that came out unrated. Um, so that's how I met, that's how I met George. And what do you think was, I mean, I don't even know how you would, I don't, I don't know if there's a singular answer to this, but what are some of the things that you learned from George? Like what, because that, to see what happens, like you start working on, you start working in 1984, 1985, and then pretty soon after that, it just is nonstop. <laughs> like, yeah. you're, the, you're, if anyone looks at all of your credits, there are movies that I think people would go, oh, yeah, of course, he worked on that movie. And other ones that are like, he worked on Boogie Nights? Did you make Dirk Diggler's dick? <laughs> like, what, what the fuck? Uh, did you make Dirk Diggler's dick? We did. Yes! And I will tell you, I, I, I had, I think it's still there. There's, I made one. Um, and we shipped it to Georgia because Norman and Andy, we were going to play a prank on somebody and it was sitting in a box under my driver's seat of my car in Georgia for three years. It might still be there. And somebody said, if you, he said, if you ever get pulled over and the cops search your car and they find a box about this big under your seat and they open it, they're going to be surprised. Officer, this is a very famous penis. But I imagine you can't travel with that because you, that's, it's of a size that you would have to buy an additional seat on a plane. Like you couldn't just, it's that doesn't great. fit in it's, the overhead it's, bin. Yeah. It's, it's like great, a pet or a, sure. you have to like buy yeah. an extra seat for it. But well, listen, going back to the Romero car. thing, <laughs> going back to the George thing for a minute, here's one of the interesting things about our friendship was, you know, my dad was still is a big movie buff. So we had a beta video recorder. It was like either you had beta or VHS. And right. beta went the way of like, uh, of, um, of like, what was the, wasn't Blu-ray. What was the other? Uh, it was just, it was just HD DVD. HD, yeah. You had either HD DVD or Blu-ray. So you, you got a 50-50 chance to pick the one that's going to, that's going to hit and the one that's not. So we collected movies on beta, like movies would come on TV and we would record them and we saved all the stuff. And we had a literally like an alphabet alphabetized list of all the movies. And I remember going to visit George on set of Creepshow and I brought the list. And in between setups, he was looking at the list and he was like, Oh wow, you have Viva Zapata. Oh, I love that movie. And, and I said, well, listen, you know, I mean, we have a VHS and we have a beta. If there's any movies that you're, you're interested in, I can run copies for you, no problem. Um, and this was on a Friday and he made, I think there were 20 movies maybe on the list that he loved. And I realized that it was cool that we were sort of talking about movies and all this kind of stuff. So I stayed up the entire weekend and made copies of all of those movies for him. And they were all like, you know, Treasure of Sierra Madre, um, 
you know, there was a couple, uh, there was a couple cool Westerns and there was a lot of really, really cool stuff in there. And then Monday morning I went out to the creep show set and I showed up with a box of VHS tapes for him and I handed him and he went, you did all those. Like, did you even sleep? And I was like, no, come on, man. You, know, you, were, <laughs> you, you wanted these movies and I wanted to, you know, sort of um, enhance your collection because that's what everybody did. That was even before people were really bootlegging and there was like, you know, they didn't, uh, people were like, oh, you collect movies. I collect movies. Yeah. It was like a, a hobby. And then of course, you know, it got weird after that, but it was, that was one of the things that George and I really sort of connected on was, was movies that he loved and movies that I loved. And, and <clears throat> that's kind of how we really began our friendship was just falling in love with the same kinds of movies and, and sharing that love for those movies together. Yeah. And I imagine that, you know, over time too, he must've been so excited for you to watch you like blossom and innovate and sort of go from this kid, literally a kid that he met in a cafe who then made videotapes for him to like one of the guys who <laughs> helped literally redefine the special effects industry. Well, he always used to say, you know, you're going to go back to school, right? And you're going to finish up college and you're going to become a doctor. Like, he used to look at me and it, he would always say, God, your parents are probably so mad at me because I derailed you from this medical career. And somehow or another, you, you became seduced with filmmaking. And I think it's my fault. Like George felt bad that, um, that he had come into my life and that I had decided to sort of redirect and finally i think one day i said you know george it's okay <laughs> it's okay that i didn't finish school and that i followed uh my dream because this is what who this is who i am and it's what has defined me and made me the person i am is the fact that i did have this dream and i did have this undying love for making movies and and creating and i was blessed with this fantastic opportunity. So I would say, George, I think my parents are okay that I'm not a doctor. It's okay. You don't have to worry about it anymore. I mean, I, I really do suggest that people look at your resume. There, actually, there is someone here that I didn't even know about, but it goes Day of the Dead, Invasion USA, Creepshow 2, Predator, Evil Dead 2, Phantasm 2, Monkey Shines, The Horror Show, Deep Star 6, Halloween 5, then Leatherface, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, Bride of Reanimator, Misery, then Dances with Wolves. Yeah, that was all within three years. Those, yeah, those all those crazy. movies that you just listed was from 1988 to 1990. That's nuts. I mean, at, at that time, did you sort of feel like you were ready to do all that? Or you're like, well, it's happening. I'll figure it out. Like how far into the process did you start to realize like, oh, I think I actually know what I'm doing and this is what I'm supposed to do? You, you know, the funny thing about any business is there's always that weird catch 22. There's always that thing where they're like, well, I can't hire you to do this job because you've never done this job. It's a very weird. So when we started K&B in 1988, we had a lot of people that would be like, well, how do we know you guys can handle your own show? Because it's very complicated. So we're not going to give you the opportunity because we don't know you can do it, even though we love your work. And that was, that, that was a really strange, I didn't understand that theory and that thinking. 
And it was after we did Evil Dead 2 and we wrapped, I flew back to Los Angeles. I did Evil Dead 2 and then Creepshow 2 and then came back to LA and got a phone call the following February from Scott Spiegel. Scott wrote Evil Dead 2 and he said, hey dude, I'm doing this low budget movie called Intruder and I need some kid that can do the effects in his garage because we have like $2,000 for all the makeup effects. And I remember saying, dude, I'll, I'll do it. Like I said, you know, me and Howard Berger and Bob Kurtzman, you know, we're, we're looking for an opportunity. So that's, this is the perfect opportunity. Now I was also at the same time working on Phantasm 2 and Deep Star 6. So I would work on Intruder at night and Howard was working on Child's Play with Kevin Yeager. So we had day jobs where we were doing makeup effects for other companies. And then at night we would work on our own show and it took a couple months to sort of transition that into developing a resume with our own credits on it. Um, but it, but you know, the, the work came fast and a lot of it was, you know, through George Romero, you know, Deborah Hill had, uh, had produced, a movie at Disney called Gross Anatomy, which was a medical school movie about students um, autopsying cadavers and like the trials and tribulations of kids going through school. And, and uh, George Romero told Deborah Hill, you should hire Greg Nicotero and his company because Greg was pre-med. So I went to Disney because it was a Disney movie. And that's how we got that job. And then from Gross Anatomy, uh, one of the women that worked at K&B, her best friend was Kevin Costner's assistant. And when Kevin was getting ready to do Dances with Wolves, Kevin looked at our portfolio and saw the realistic cadavers that we had created for this movie, Gross Anatomy, and hired us to do The Buffalo from Dances with Wolves. So in two short years, we made the leap from mostly gory, genre stuff we made this leap into kind of mainstream movies um and that i think was what defined our company over other companies was we were doing movies like dances with wolves and city slickers and movies that you that weren't makeup effects like you wouldn't off the top of your head go oh yeah of course i can see what they would have built in that movie but when you would see the film and you would see the buffalo hunt and dances with wolves and you'd see them skinning the buffalo. You might be like, maybe that's what they did. I'm not sure. Yeah. But that's also, um, you're being flexible and it's like, we can, we can do effects at any level for any genre. And then when you're around long enough, I, I imagine what happens is, you know, the first 10 years of your career, you're inspiring all these young filmmakers and then they get old enough to start making their own stuff. And they're like, oh my God, I have to work with Greg Nicotero because, you know, he, I fucking love Bride of Reanimator and he's done so much. And so then you start getting hired by people who are already, who grew up watching you, who are already fans of you. Yeah. And so it's, the other part of it is just like staying in the game <laughs> and continuing to, innovate and continuing to grow and continuing to challenge yourself. But also, you know, like it, I, I, I imagine there are so many stories of like first time directors 
that you probably worked with for less money than you normally would because you're like, you know what? They're a fan of this thing. I want to help them out because I was given the same. That happened yeah. for me when I was a kid. That happens a lot. And, and still to this day, you know, we did a movie uh, two years ago with Mick Garris called Nightmare Cinema. Mm -hmm. And it was an anthology movie. Uh, Joe Dante directed one. Uh, Mick directed one. David Slade directed one. There was four or five stories. And they didn't have any, they didn't have any money. Um, and it wasn't about the money. It was about like, you know, we, we like being a part of a lot of those projects and working with filmmakers that inspired us or that we want to be a part of. And I think that's, that's something really nice that, that Howard and I have been able to do with K&B um, since 1988. You know, I mean, it's what, 30 We'll be, we had our 32nd year anniversary in February. That's the crazy. It's been around for 32 years. But also working on these films that aren't necessarily like horror specific or fantasy specific. So many, there's so many elements that are like stars of a movie. Like, you know, how many people talked about the hobbling scene in Misery? You know, yeah, like yeah. It, it's the, those are the elements that, especially when they're done realistically in a way in a place in a, in a setting where you wouldn't normally expect them i feel like that's another place where they have a chance to shine and really kind of sneak into the into pop culture because you know no one saw that scene coming in that movie but it had to be done someone had to figure out how to fold his fucking ankle over a oh. yeah yeah well uh, it's funny because in those instances like that you know i it's i have a funny story about that i was dating this girl and I took her to the cast crew screening for uh -huh. misery and we got to that hobbling scene and you know I had a meeting with um <clears throat> Steve Nicolaides was the producer and Rob uh and Rob Reiner was a director and the first meeting we had on misery they're like listen in the book Annie Wilkes cuts his foot off with an axe but you know we can't do that we can't cut Jimmy Kahn's foot off so we're going to do this thing called hobbling. We're going to put a block of wood there and she's going to use a sledgehammer. That was our first meeting um, for misery. And then cut to, we go to the cast crew screening. I'm sitting next to this, this girl I'm dating at the time. And the scene's about to come up and she gets really anxious, you know, and, and uh, Kathy Bates brings the sledgehammer up and she's get, and I'd lean over and I said, please don't scream. Well, <laughs> writers rob writer sitting right in front of us and i don't want to be embarrassed like i was more worried about like being like feeling awkward right so of course the sledgehammer comes up the sledgehammer goes down she screams <laughs> bloody murder so the movie ends we're walking out of the theater and rob comes over and he says uh, hey man i just want to say thanks amazing work and i said as ah, first time i had ever seen it it's amazing and he said, in our test screening, I knew we had something because when Kathy would raise the sledgehammer and start to swing down, he said, you could feel the oxygen get sucked out of the theater when everybody at the exact same time went, <gasps> the entire theater. And I was so, I was so intrigued by that. And then the collective scream when the sledgehammer makes contact which you only see one you only see one we made both but and we shot them but in the edit 
you only see that one wide shot of the ankle being broken. Well, because you, as, a, as a viewer, especially at that time, now, like, you know, there's a ton of effects in almost everything. But at that time, there's that feeling of like, they can't, they're not going to show, they can't possibly. And then you see it and it's just, it's so visceral. Everyone can imagine it, you just feel how horrible, like you just feel. And the sound, yeah. And it plays on like every anxious nightmare you've had about, you know, like breaking a, a ankle or, you know, just like having a limb paralyzed or a foot cut off or something. I mean, it it so precisely hits all of those fear centers. But I even think the first couple decades of your career, now, again, you can shoot stuff on Walking Dead. You can see it in a viewfinder, like what it, you like you can see the green screen stuff in the background you can see stuff right after you shoot you can take a look but you're shooting you know when you first start out you're shooting stuff on film you don't know how it looks you're sort of hoping yeah. that it yeah. like well when they develop this i think this probably looked okay but i guess we won't know until it's too late yeah listen video playback you know but there's something that you just reminded me of you know i think one of the one of the really significant aspects of Hollywood in the seventies was the ratings board mm-hmm. and Jack Valente. And you had those situations where the ratings board was dictating uh, what people could watch and what people couldn't watch. So when I'll use Dawn of the Dead as an example, when Dawn of the Dead came out, they were like, this movie's too gory. We're not even going to give it a rating we're, you can't have an R rating. It's unrated. And George, at the time, he refused to accept their, their uh, determination. So they released Dawn of the Dead with no rating. And they had this little thing that says there's no explicit sex in this movie. However, there are scenes of violence. So I really feel like in the 70s and then mid-80s up until probably, God, maybe even like 1991, 92. I'm trying to think of when we did Casino. Uh, yeah, it would have been up until the mid-90s, the ratings board censored everything that was done. And I think that, that that instilled this sort of rebellious nature of filmmakers. They're like, oh, you you think I can't show that? Well, watch this. And then they would do it even more. You had guys like Stuart Gordon and um, and Sam Raimi, who just did these absolutely outrageous movies, Reanimator, Evil Dead 2, all this crazy stuff. But I think a lot of it was done because there was a time and people today, I don't think they would even think about it because imagine a ratings board for Netflix. Like there's, you, it's almost, you can watch anything you want now, yeah, but, but when but we were kids. Even an episode, a garden variety episode of Walking Dead would have been almost unreleasable in the 80s. Yes. Like they never yes. would have some of the shit you guys are able to do on that show now is, and I think that was the other thing. I'm like, oh, wow, they can do this on television now. But I mean, I do think though that that kind of, um, the nature of having those films unrated, uh, I think lent to the sort of underground. Yeah, I agree. Easy element of like, of people who were counterculture who were like, oh, fuck that. I'm not, you know, like the machine you know, the man says, I can't watch this. Fuck that. Yeah. This is awesome. This is what, this is real. This is authentic. This is, you know, this is punk rock film. I mean, it really was like punk music yeah. or film. And I think that kind of, 
I mean, not that I support censorship, but I think that kind of censorship at that time, the creative censorship did lend itself to helping to build out the super fan community of like, this is our thing and it's special and we're we're all a part of something special. And thank God it's rejected by the mainstream because fuck mainstream. And I'm sure there are people who are like hardcore original fans who are probably irritated that the stuff is mainstream now. They're like, oh, it's sold out, you know? Of course, because it's, because it's perceived as a sellout. Yeah. But also it was like, there was always that, that little bit of like, do I really want to watch this unrated version of some movie? Because if somebody's telling me that I shouldn't watch it, maybe it's really fucked up and it kind of, but then you're like, Oh yeah, I have to see it. And you're right. That created a whole new subspecies of super fans that would, you know, and you know, we're not even getting into the boom of the VHS um, world where you would go to the video store and you would look in the new releases and you'd find the uh, previously unrated, like, but like, like we were saying earlier, you had to work for it. Like it wouldn't just land in your lap. If you wanted the unrated version of something, you had to find it and you had to make that choice. And I think the people that made those choices to watch those uncut, unrated movies, you know, look at Quentin Tarantino for, for crying out loud. I mean, the guy, the guy was, was born literally to be that guy in the video store. Um, and it, it, <laughs> well, you it to in specialty shops though, you had to go to like a Vidiots or a rocket video or like some kind of weird place to blockbuster to, wouldn't have them. Yeah, no, exactly. So you had to hunt down mm-hmm. and you know, those were basically the forums. Like those were the re- the subreddits of the old, of the old days was like going to like a Vidiots or a rocket video or something and meeting other people who were also fans and trading videos. And like, yeah. it was that community, but you had to, it took a lot of effort. Now it's very easy to acquire content, but it did take a lot of, I mean, even the fact that you had to make VHS tapes for George Romero, it's like, oh yeah, where else would he have just seen anything that he wanted to on You demand? wouldn't, you, you wouldn't. And that was in 1980, you wouldn't. You, they would have had to have been movies that you recorded off of television because back then that's where you would get all of your movies. You would record them off TV when they would play them and they played a lot of great movies, but. Yeah, and with the success of HBO and then the launching of like Cinemax and some of the grittier ones, they needed content for those. So those are the places they could dump off, you know, the more um, crude material by definite by you know standard definition. And then that's where people like me saw all these great, you know, I mean, I've told the story a million times. But the first the first horror movie I ever saw was Phantasm. Halloween night in, you know, 1970, whatever it was, nine or something. And my parents were out and I was with a babysitter and we watched, and I got to see Phantasm on HBO and it fucked me up and changed my life. And like, Mm -hmm. those places, the need for content really helped create a, a, a playground for people who wouldn't otherwise, it was just harder to come by shit back then. You really had to seek it out. Yeah. And I and I I will always stand by my assessment that that's the that's the DNA that all of us share is that you know a lot of people don't realize that you know they used to send a TV guide to your house every week and you'd get the TV guide when you were a kid and you'd have to go through and you'd have to circle when a movie was going to be on TV and to record but not even even before video recorders because I'm a little older than you. 
but when I was a kid, you didn't even have a VCR. You would have to sit by the TV when it was on. And if you missed it, you were screwed. So, you, you know, your mom would be like, Greg, take out the trash. I'm like, but King Kong versus Godzilla is going to be on in, in 10 minutes. Or you, you would plan your time around when you needed to be in front of the television. And that goes all to that seeking it out. And that's the, that's the common thread that every, every single filmmaker has, which is when you work for it, it's more personal to you. Yeah, like you know that on Friday nights there's going to be a creature feature or some type of a kaiju yeah. movie or Tales from the, you know, the, the opening to Tales from the Dark Side still freaks me out. And all they do really is just like show the negative of the, of the film. Yeah, in a terrible 80s digital yeah. uh, 80s like uh, a video oh it's video yeah they just show you the photo negative of it you know and it's so simple um but you know in as much as obviously it's fun to create very complicated effects i mean i have a great respect for just the simplicity of like flipping one little switch and it like just something like that mm -hmm. oh yeah that that inst that was an incredibly expensive thing to do but even just that little flip totally created a vibe. I'm curious to know like what your feeling is on showing scary stuff versus not showing too much the balance, because obviously things that come right at you at the screen can be scary, but they can also be, it can also be scarier when things happen out of your field of vision, which I know initially was done for budgetary reasons, but also really creates psychological drama. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes budgetary reasons and other times because, you know, using like Alien as the perfect example, you know, Ridley Scott was like, oh, it looks like a guy in a suit. I can't see too much of it. So I'm going to use very small snippets of footage to put together to give the audience an impression of what this creature is. You know, there's two, there's two sides to the coin because one of them is, I, I sort of like leaving it to your imagination because I had a very, and still, still do, a very active imagination when I was a kid. Stuff, I would close my eyes in movies a lot because I was afraid of what I was going to see. And there were movies that I would have to see three or four times before I could get up the nerve to watch it. And when I finally did, I realized that what I imagined in my head was far worse than what they had actually shot <laughs> for the movie. And it was really interesting because I used to get myself really like freaked out so much so that I couldn't sleep and I would sit in my room and I would put the light on and I would read book after book after book until I would fall asleep with the book in my hand and my mom would come in and turn the light up. That's how she knew that I had seen something that was scary um, when I was young. Um, so, oh my God, we've already been going over an hour. Greg, I could talk to you for three more hours. I, I'm gonna, I know, that's why I was asking. I want to make sure I don't screw you up. No, you're not. You're fine. I, I have a guitar lesson at 3.30. I've been taking guitar and piano lessons via FaceTime. Good, good. Um, but, uh, so I'm just going to hit you with a couple of just, there's still like five more things that I wanted to ask you okay. about. Okay. Um, so we'll just sort of go through rapid fire to sort of yeah. see like you know what we can I know I'm not necessarily a very good rapid fire guy because I tend to yeah but embellish. it's fine because I I'm, I'm very interested in all of your stories so I, I I'm fine with that whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate 
Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code WONDERY. Um, so... Uh... You and I, and my, my wife and you and I all share the, the movie prop collection uh, bug. Yes. It, in my office now, I've got the Dark Helmet from Spaceballs. I have a Vogon from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy back there. I saw it when you we were have Gremlins. In we have a Wolfhead from The Howling. One of her favorite props is Evil Ash. She has the Evil Ash mask from Army Oh, Oh, that's cool. Wait, the- you have a werewolf head from The Howling? Uh, yes. Yes, we do. Uh, yeah, you, you got, <laughs> when, when we're able to like visit people again, cause I want to see, so that's some of the stuff we have. I see an alien in the back there. Well, this isn't even my display room. This is my music room. Um, but I just, uh, talking about the howling, I just got the full size rod puppet that they built. Oh my gosh. For the howling. There's these famous photos of the Shank brothers Don and Jeff Shank building this werewolf rod puppet. And I talked to Joe Dante about it the other day and he said, yeah, it was so cool. And it looked beautiful. And then we realized that they, we'd have to cut holes in the wall and the puppeteers would have to be on the other side of the wall. We couldn't figure out um, how to use it, but it's like this unbelievably magnificent piece of artwork. So I've, I've ended up, being able to acquire some of the stuff that Rob Bottin had built. And Rob's pretty, he's a pretty secretive guy in terms of uh, some of his stuff being available. But, you know, I've built a lot of my own props as well as acquired <laughs> yeah, stuff. We can't so. claim that. What do you have and what's your favorite? Uh, whether it's your own stuff or someone else's? Um, well, I have the crate from the original Creep Show. Uh, oh, the one that's got the one that's got all the blood on the side. Yeah, uh, I have that that was given to be given to me by Tom Savini. Um, I'm trying to think of stuff that I have. I've been collecting a lot of artwork lately too. I just got a couple pieces of art from Drew Struzan, 
he did the original Food of the Gods and Squirm paintings uh -huh. for the movie poster. So I've been kind of getting into like movie poster art. Um, but I'm trying to think of original, like I have a couple props from the thing. <laughs> oh, that old thing. I know, but it's strange because I've been shifting stuff around and moving things around a lot. So I've seen a lot of it recently, but I'm trying to think of what's original and what is stuff that I've acquired, you know, like prop replicas and stuff that I built, you know. What are you proudest of then? What's the, what are you proudest of that you were able to build that you thought there's literally no way we're going to be able to do this and then you figure it out? Well, you know, we built a replica of the pod from 2001. Oh, wow. And it was a project that I had started 20 years ago because I was on set with Robert Rodriguez for Spy Kids 3 and we had to build these big giant dome things for the two kids to float in the water. And I went, wait a minute, if we got two of these domes and we glued them together and we cut the sides off and we put little fake earmuffs on them and it was four foot, then it could look like the pod from 2001. And it became sort of kind of this running joke at K&B that anytime we weren't very busy, I would say, guys, let's pull the pod out and we'd wipe all the dust off of it and we'd start to work on it. And then we'd get another huge show. So every once in a while, the crew would come to me and go, hey, we should get the pod out. And I'm like, I know why you want to get the pod out. So it's going to come out and then we're never going to work on it because we're going to get some big gig. So finally, two years ago, I was like, we have to finish. It's the anniversary of the release of the movie. We got to finish it. And now we have 3D printers. So I found blueprints of all the pieces of the claws and we 3D printed all the parts and we made this magnificent replica um, of the pod from 2001. You know, I did a replica of the time machine from the Rod Taylor movie. Um, these were all things that, that I, that I built. Just uh, fun hobby projects. Like you, as, as and of course they're all full size. So, you know, they're in the other room, which <laughs> next time we do this, we'll do it for my display room. Oh my God, that would be so, that would be fantastic. Did you, I just have to go back to it because I can't stop. I'm so curious about it. Did you sculpt the Diggler penis by hand or did you just tell people that it was a, it was a cast? Oh, I just cast it off my, uh, it was a personal cast. Uh, it was sculpted. And ironically, I think I want to say Garrett Immel sculpted it, who works on The Walking Dead with us. And we had done a camera test. And the first time that we did the first camera test, um, he looked too aroused. <laughs> um, and there's literally I have a VHS tape someplace with uh, footage of Heather Graham like sitting there like oh wow and Mark Wahlberg wearing the prosthetic and it's kind of pointed right at her and she's like <laughs> you know, cleaning her nails and they're like oh, I cut and then um, and then they had called it and said we think it, it it's right now pointing at one o'clock and it needs to point at like five o'clock. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the most delicate way of, uh, of putting it. So we ended up sculpting another version. And I know Garrett applied it on set for Mark. And uh, it was, uh, I love the movie. Listen, I'm a super, um, a super fan of that film to begin with. I think the performances are fantastic, whether you ever see it or not. And I think the irony of it is, 
you see it in one shot at the end of the movie and it's like a wide shot, you know, in the But mirror. it's also a scene that everyone talks about because it, again, that was sort of his, that was his superpower in the whole movie, you know? Like, yeah. obviously, the acting is brilliant and the story and the cinema, like, everything about the movie is just such a stunning movie and really sort of brought back that style of film, like, sort of borrowed from the 70s, but also created, again, a whole aesthetic for independent yeah. film and it but then when you finally see it again it's like the hobbling thing it's like a big deal because it's one of those like they're not going to show it holy shit you know like it again yeah. was another the effect was the star of the movie was, was another star of that movie well we did uh I, I know there was a point when uh howard stern was going on and on about the movie and one of the guys that worked at K&B at the time had reached out to his team and we happened to be in New York. So we, we went on the Howard Stern show and made a copy of the penis and <laughs> Howard Stern. That's and I have a photo of me standing there with two other K&B guys and him, and he's wearing it. And oh, he put it up. He's like, Robin, come here. You got to check this out. Like, I'm not coming anywhere near you. <laughs> But it's just one of those things where you you forget how impactful what we do, you know, like the the I, I was gonna talk about this earlier, casino. You know, I was thinking when you were talking about something, I was remembering moments where people walked out of the theater because they were offended by something that we had done. And I know the ear scene in Reservoir Dogs. I remember like Wes Craven talking about it and um, <clears throat> uh, JFK Jr. It was like a, it was like in a page six article where he was watching Reservoir Dogs and he walked out of the theater. And then when we got to Casino and there's the shot where Pesci puts the guy's head in the vice yeah. and crushes it. And people were so angry. People were so mad that that movie dared to show them something that was so horrific. And that, that bit sort of helped put our company and that movie, it made that movie um, in a lot of instances, the brutality of it was, was part of the story was a character in the movie. And I remember flying to Las Vegas at the end scene where Pesci is killed and his body is thrown into the grave and they're burying him alive. And we made this full, we made this full size dummy of Joe Pesci that we had arm movement and head and neck movement and a tube in the mouth. And we would put the body into the grave and then uh, Scorsese would come over and he'd give us some notes and then we would shoot the shot. And then every time we would have to do another take, I would have to jump into the grave and clean all the dirt off and get it ready to do take two or take three. And I remember him coming up and looking at the monitor and seeing it moving. And he was watching, Wayne Toth was with me. It was oh, Wayne fantastic. and I. It was Wayne and I. Um, and we were making jokes that like, if you dug too far to the left or the right, we might actually find a real body in the ground. Cause we were like, <laughs> we're outside of Vegas. And it was just such a fun experience and such a cool moment to be a part of that scene and then I remember Wayne and I went back to the hotel 
and we're walking through the casino and we were covered in dirt and fake blood, like literally up to our, up to our waist. Cause we kept jumping into the grave and putting blood and, and mud on it. And I leaned over to him and I went, how many people do you think walked through this casino before us covered in blood and mud that they had really just buried somebody in the desert? It was just so weirdly random, but <laughs> Yeah, it reminded me of that story when you were talking about like sort of the the taboo nature of it because there was that group of people that would get either number one would get angry or number two, when you think about reservoir dogs, you never see Mike Madsen cutting the ear off. The camera pans away and then Mike Madsen walks into the shot holding the ear. But people walked out of that theater and would swear to God that they saw the razor cut the ear off, and it's not there. But you just reminded me that uh, early on in the run of Talking Dead, you gave me one of Daryl's ear necklaces as yep. a birthday present. I have it sitting over here. I Yay! I'm very excited about it. Um, one of the ears had been loose, and it, it broke in half. So I have to just get it fixed. I just have to get it glued back together. Oh, it's silicone. Well, when we're, listen, I'll come over i'll look at your howling werewolf head i'll bring some silicone you could use silicone caulking if you have any you know like that you use on, oh. on pipes and stuff silicone Great. caulking and just put it on there that would and put some put a couple pins through it and that should hold it i love that you think i'm handy enough that i just have silicone caulking sitting around i'm not um but uh, I, you know it's funny i probably don't either so we're both <laughs> screwed another thing that i was going to pitch to you is maybe k and b make some masks you know some like like wearable outdoor masks, like just a lower half of the of a zombie face or something. If you have any of those, I will give you money for that. We uh, have been we have been making them. The trick is, the material. You know, you don't want to you don't want to be breathing out of that. Oh, you don't want to be breathing that. Yeah, I, I mean, eventually. But we have. But we, trust me, we we've been using our three D printers and we've been making masks and stuff that we've been donating. But yeah, it, you know, I saw somebody online made a face hugger mask that I thought was pretty cool. Um, I, I really, you know, as you've said, since season two of your show, season one of ours, Oh, come on down to Georgia. We'll make you a zombie. And I've always been like, Oh, I don't want to get in the way. I feel, but now I feel like if I don't do it at some point, I'm going to regret someday that I was not, that I didn't get to do it. So I hope that season 11 is the season where I can come down and, and just... I hope so, too. And be, be a zombie. Listen, you just got to do it in an episode that I direct because then you can show up, we'll shoot your shot, and then you can, you don't have to stand in the... Done! In the heat. But, by the way, who knows, by the time we start shooting, it'll probably be cold again in Georgia, It could. So. I mean, I just have to pause quickly and give so much props to the, the, zomp, to the walkers... Like yes. the people who do the Walker stuff, who not only do them so convincingly, but also really brave some intense conditions sometimes in the in the Atlanta heat. And I know that you all are very conscious about keeping people ventilated, keeping people hydrated, keeping people as comfortable as possible. But it is really not an easy thing to do. No, <laughs> not at all. To just to really just walk in the background sometimes, just to walk in the background of a shot, the shit that these actors have to go through. And I just, I have so much respect for it. I do too. Listen, it's, it's, and we've created our little troop of, of performers and our go-to people that we go to over and over again when we know there's a specific gag, you know, it's like uh, Alex Hill and Lauren McKnight and Melanie Dale and Garrett Zenner. Like I could name 
like probably 12 or 15 people that are our Brandon Jones, that are our go-to people. And the beauty is, is that they've all probably worn 50 to 100 different makeups on the show. And for the most part, you can never tell. Can, and, and as much as you're allowed to say, and certainly you don't have to if you can't, but I just, you know, we, the, 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 the last episode of the last season obviously got pushed a little bit just because yeah. of everything that's going on. But just for people to understand a little bit, and I think that I, the sense that I got is people were very understanding because of all the serious shit that's going on in the world. Right. But the idea of like, look, we, we had to protect our effects people. The show is very effects heavy. So we, like, people just couldn't go in to work. We had to keep them safe and distance themselves just so people understand a little bit. So it's not like, what, they couldn't be on their computer? You know, like, what is yeah, a yeah, little yeah. bit of the process of like, this is why we needed to keep these people safe? Well, listen, there's more to it than just finishing the visual effects. You know, usually what happens, and I know, I think I posted something on AMC's Instagram when somebody went, wait, I don't understand. What does post mean? Because the, when the uh, press release came out and they said, they're still not finished with post and, and people didn't understand that. So I wrote in and I said, post-production uh, encompasses a lot of different things. It's visual effects. It's also color timing so that you can adjust to make sure that every, every shot from a scene, the color looks the same. It's quality control or quality check. Because, you know, once you do all this work, then people have to go through and look at the episodes with a fine-tooth comb and go, oh, I see a Starbucks cup. Oh, there's there's somebody's Some phone in their pocket. Stop doing that, it turns There's out. somebody's phone in their pocket. You know, it's funny. There was a picture from episode 12 of Ryan Hurst on set with Thora Birch. And it was a behind-the-scenes photo. And Ryan's phone was in the pocket, I think, of his jacket. And so many people went apeshit about it. Like, oh, my God, look at that, his phone. And I was like, guys, it was behind-the-scenes photo. But so there's a lot of steps that you have to go through. And because of the way the show is shot and the fact that it takes time, you have to edit it. And you also have to take care of all the other episodes prior to the finale. So by the time you get to the finale, you're just about to catch your breath. There's visual effects that have to get done. There's sound effects. There's mixing. There's music and audio. There's quality check. There's color timing. All of those things have to happen. So it's not just about two or three people sitting in a room at a computer doing visual effects. There's a lot of other little nuances that usually those happen up to almost about three or four weeks before the episode airs. Mm -hmm. So in this particular instance, episode 16 was right up to that mark and we just hadn't gotten the episode over the finish line. So it wasn't, it wasn't a situation that any one department was holding us up. It was that there are a series of steps that have to be done in order for the episode to air, to follow FCC guidelines and all that kind of stuff. But, and so it was the right it's thing. It's kind of complicated. No, it was the right thing to do. And again, we didn't, we didn't have a Talking Dead episode for an incredibly pivotal episode. Because no. <laughs> it was just, it was more important to air on the side of safety. This was before the official quarantine, but a lot of productions were, were, were going dark. And it was like, we just can't take a risk. We don't know enough yeah. about this thing we don't want to put anyone in harm's way or God forbid they take it home and pass on. Like it's just, let's just be safe for now as safe as we can. And we'll figure this out later. But I do have to say 
the last three episodes that did air all could have been finales in their own right because of how, you know, the, the, the show just moved so beautifully this season and I'm so excited and I don't want to give anything away in case people aren't caught up, but there is a, there is a reveal of a character that was very exciting to see in the, in the, in the preview footage for the next episode that will air and it will air eventually. And, you know, I'm sure we'll be there too for talking to, to talk about it afterwards. And, you know, I just, uh, Greg, I adore you. I, we've been on this too, weird journey together for 10 years now. And, you know, I, I, you and your wife and your kids, and it just, I don't know, you, you, you feel like an extended family to us and Lydia Aww. loves you. And, you know, I just, I love seeing you. And I, and I really hope that we get to hang out in person uh, sometime Me soon. Too. Is there, as we're wrapping this out, you know, is there a particular person that you're inspired by right now or a thing that is inspiring you right now? Like what, when you are tapped so much for, to be creative, where are you finding inspiration to sort of fill those, to replenish those creative resources? You know, I, it's, it's interesting because I've been doing, I've been playing my guitar a lot, mm-hmm. which has been great. I love when you and post guitar videos. You should post more. Videos. I know. I haven't posted one in a while. Uh, you know, my, my kids and I have been doing a lot of drawing and I started painting again and I haven't painted in a long time. I always said, oh, you know, one of these days I'm going to start a painting again, but I haven't had time. This is, this is forcing me to really, you know, catch my breath for a minute. And I will say that as, as challenging and uh, as this situation is and how my heart's gone to so many people that have lost so much um you know i am getting a chance to catch up on 10 years of lost time with my kids because i've been in georgia for so long that i get to be in my house and and look at my kids every day and look at them every night before they go to bed and that's something that i hadn't been able to do for a long time because i was away filming so much so i'm kind of because my kids are 14 and 17 and Devin's getting ready to go off to college. I'm yeah, he's kind just of a like, dude now. I remember when he was a little kid. He's like a dude. He's, yeah, he's <laughs> way cool. He's way, way cool and super great. And, but it's interesting because I'm getting this moment right before he goes off to college to really sort of um, exist with him. And I'm That's really nice because he will be busy that. again and he's going to be at college. And so yeah. at least that's, you know, like in in these in these kind of shit times, finding the nuggets of joy and any kind of hope and positivity is very important. And that is definitely yeah. finding something positive amidst all the all the negative stuff. But again, I have so much respect for what you do. I think well, me too, like, dude. Hardcore, too. yeah, but hardcore special effects people, you guys problem solve. Like you figure out how to do shit when most people will go. It's not possible. You make the impossible possible, and I think that is such a great lesson for life. So I appreciate you. I appreciate what you do. And thank you for spending all this time. I really hope to see you soon. But you make people laugh. <laughs> see, I, I'm not that fu- I, I think I'm funny, but I'm not that funny. I mean, <laughs> no, maybe I'm a little funny. But, I, but listen, I mean, I would say the same thing to you, dude. I mean, especially in this time, this day and age where you really need that sort of sharp wit and somebody to just be accessible and charming and, and out there. So you're, 
you're doing your part too, my friend, and I'm well, grateful you. to you and your friendship. Thank you for letting me be the uh, the weird cousin of Walking Dead. <laughs> I always imagine I'm the cousin Oliver, you know, just like the weird cousin. I love that you use cousin Oliver a lot. He's just, just like, where the fuck did oh, this kid come from? And I had wait, the same bowl haircut when I was a kid. I got to show you something before I run away. Hold on. Okay. Okay. So just remember. I feel like this is going to be a prop. Oh my God. What do I see in the background of Nicotero's office? I see a P I see some concert posters, a little spinet piano. I see a, an aliens uh, upright shooter game, like an arcade game. I see an alien, like a full alien. Oh my God. Look at that guitar. Holy shit. Oh, it's the haunted mansion guitar. Oh my God. Look at the back. Oh, it's the wallpaper on the back. I got a fire. Ah, God damn it. It's gorgeous. Do you play it? I do. You know what's funny? There's no pegs for the strap. Yeah, so then it's the question of like, because I have that with some vintage guitars, like, do I put them in there or do I just leave it alone? I that know, I, I, I know. But look look at the, the oops. This is number this is number 12 of 13. God damn it, that is fucking amazing. And it's got a little prince curly cue on it too. Yeah, uh yeah, it's uh and then there's the inlay on the neck. Oh, it's gorgeous. Look at him. How does it play? It's great. Oh my god. It's a great guitar, but it's been in, you know, I had all my guitars out on stands and then I think Slash or somebody was like, why are all your guitars out? You should put them in your cases and stand them up. They'll last longer. And I went, oh, and I ran and I put all my guitars away except for like maybe three. Yeah, I guess when Slash gives you guitar advice. Thank you, Greg Nicotero. Thank you, sir. I love you. I love you too. I said hi. You too. Okay, bye. Bye. ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop popcorn. Imagine this. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients. Popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.